George Haas, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. I'm so excited for this episode. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> Surrender to the divine flow. I'm very grateful to Michael Holt for making the introduction. I love Michael. Yes. The savage and the saint. <laughs> <laughs> he spoke very highly of you when he was on the program and we had a great conversation and we've actually been chatting it up for an hour since you arrived and we've been having a great back and forth i'm excited to share with our audience let's dive in I was asking you a bit about this on the couch while we were sitting. You had this long artistic music, photography, film, New York flow. And then this shift came to LA started sitting with Shenzhen Young, exploring with Dan Brown. I'm so interested, what was the point of shift for you towards interest in spirituality, interest in awakening? And that was around 2003? Um, you know, I'm a child of the 60s, so it was the White Album by the Beatles. <laughs> actually that did that uh you know i was in high school in the, in the 60s uh and uh it was uh hippie times and so we began then um i grew up upper middle class in chicago in the chicago area and uh highly upwardly mobile uh parents my both of my grandmothers were first generation irish um, you know, famine Irish, so poor. They came uh, and were very indoctrinated into the idea that we should be upwardly mobile, and so I had that education. Um, my father was uh, sadistic. My mother was really not that functional. And so the childhood was kind of rough. Um, and what you know... Um, from your own childhood experience, perhaps, is that you go along with the way the house runs until you get to adolescence. And then when your mind changes just from the natural growth of uh, the cognitive capacity, you can analyze for the first time whether the deals that your parents made with you were good deals or not. And if you discover that they actually were not good deals and that they were really only serving the interests of your parents, you turn away from all adults. You turn away from your parents, but because the cognitive capacities of the adolescent brain are not that well organized, you make a kind of blanket decision <clears throat> that all uh, adults are not trustworthy. And then who do you turn to but your peer group of people who've also made that decision? And then you uh, try and organize the uh, your passage through the, this part of you know, the childhood transition into youth um, 
and so there was also a lot of uh, uh, drug and alcohol use. I, I was already uh, an addict in elementary school. Uh, so when I say that the conditions in my household were rough, it was rough enough that in you know fifth grade I would come home and, and make a vodka gimlet to have uh, you know de-stress from the day. Um, but uh, that also produces a lot of unhappiness. And so uh, when the kind of psychedelia of the time suggested uh, turning towards uh, spiritual solutions, uh, we were all gung-ho and, and went into it. Um, I went, um, uh, there was also, there's also the um, sort of financial aspect of pursuing alternative spiritual practices. TM was also very popular. That was the, the practice that the, uh, the Maharishi was offering to the Beatles. And uh, to get your um, mantra at that time was $400. $400 in 1968 was a lot of money, way more than I could get my hands on. And so I went to the cafeteria of Northwestern University, which was in the town I grew up in, and uh, talked a college student into giving me his mantra, even though it was supposed to be kept secret, and practiced with that for a while and developed c concentration from that, uh, and that was useful. But uh, the, the addiction swept way right over that and really didn't produce much in terms of awakening. So um, I um, left home and lived on the street for about 15 months or so that was harrowing i tended to think of it at the time as my great sort of vagabond adventure but it was actually just living on the street homeless which was not great uh, after all um, i came home and uh, one of the things about living on the street is that it's really boring and uh, so i decided that I needed to do something that would make living on the street less boring. And so I decided that if I could learn how to take photographs, I could document my experience living on the street, and that would be really interesting. So I came home, and I, uh, my parents were willing to pay for college, but nothing else, really. Uh, and so I enrolled in a community college and took a class on photography. But that became so interesting to me that living on the street no longer had an appeal. And so I then began pursuing uh, my art education. So in Chicago, um, I went to the Chicago Academy of Fine Arts because I could just apply and get in. My, my high school transcript was rather poor, except my SAT scores were pretty good for the time. And so uh, I met Byron Grush at, at Chicago Academy, who if you lived in Chicago, you might know he's an underground filmmaker, really interesting guy, and really expanded my understanding of what that could be. Then I went to the Art Institute. Uh, I'm, I'm really more attracted to teachers and what they have to show me than I am to curriculums or degrees. Mm -hmm. And so I've, mm -hmm. I have uh, never gotten a degree, but I have gotten a lot of credits. <laughs> <laughs> I went to Mexico for a while, came back. Um, the, my attempts to get my family uh, situation to work better failed and so I moved to New York I'm answering your question so don't worry uh, I'm enjoying the journey. <laughs> uh, gay, I'm a gay man so uh, uh, and uh, it's very different now than it was then um, 
when you came out uh, when it when in your early 20s, which is when some people did it, uh, I did it a little earlier than that. You just reconciled to the fact that your family and your friends would abandon you and you would have to start over. It was one of the big hitches in people coming out. You had to make a decision about being a second class citizen and accepting that. And you had to make a decision of losing everyone you've ever loved in order to pursue this other thing. So that other thing has to be really important to do. Um, I went to New York uh, and uh, it turned out to be a really uh, spectacularly good time to go there. Uh, they're talking about that period of New York, the, the sort of the second half of the 70s into the early 80s as a period uh, of artistic expression equivalent to Paris in the 20s. So if you can imagine, I had a 1,400 square foot loft on 11th and Broadway, which I paid $174 a month for. So I, four years ago when I was in New York, it was for rent and I looked it up. It was $8,500 a month. So you... You can see the difference in that. So we only had to work two days a week and then we could spend the other five days a week uh, running around uh, uh, creating art. And so there was this uh, real explosion of expression at that time. Wow. Um, I like to say that that period ended because of AIDS, crack and finance, uh, finance being the most pernicious of them all, obviously. Um, and so in the gay community at that time, when uh, you'd had this first burst of freedom and you could actually be open about who you were and actually make relationships uh, around uh, uh, an authentic expression of who you were as best you could, you know, if you grow up gay and you identify it early in your life, you also grow up to learn how to pretend to be someone else because the consequences of coming out at that time were so severe. So uh, it, it, it creates a, a fracture in, in self-identity. Um, and so we have this burst of an uh, enormous creative energy, this burst of social connection, uh, really uh, a very... Uh, intense and beautiful time, which then uh, is consumed by uh, a pandemic, or not a pandemic in the sense, or an epidemic of uh, an incurable disease that's 100% fatal. Different than this pandemic, right? This pandemic is 3% fatal, but if you can contrast that to the idea of a, if you get infected, you die, uh, very different. And it, it really went through the community in a, in a devastating way, uh, quite different in terms of the response of the government. Uh, Reagan was president and he said nothing. A hundred thousand people died before they made a statement and it wasn't the president making the statement. It was his press secretary who said that AIDS is God's punishment for homosexuality. That was the, the government response. And so... The community came together to attend to the people who were sick and dying, and it was a, uh, a very scary uh, death cycle, uh, the complete failure of your immune system. And it was also happening to young people in a way that was um, quite alarming. You know, the, the people that I were, was uh, caring for when they died were in their 20s. 
um, beautiful, you know, you know this, we talked about it a little bit. The 20s is such a vibrant, interesting time as people come out of the childhood, come out of the adolescence into who they're going to be, really an extraordinary time. And so that moment was the moment that the shift happened. And I recognized that I needed to go in, uh, in a direction that would provide uh, a deep uh, spiritual connection to make sense out of what was happening. I, I had gotten sober already. Um, I got sober when I was uh, 24. I, got, I had cirrhosis of the liver when I was 23. My younger brother um, was killed in a motorcycle accident and the loss was unbearable and, and my drinking accelerated to the point that I was... Uh, I had stage three cirrhosis when I was 23. <laughs> so overachiever. Uh, uh, so got sober at 24 and then uh, in my late 20s, of course, it was just attending to the 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 deaths one death after another uh, if you can uh, picture it imagine uh, every three months going to the funeral of one of your close friends for years um, with no support in fact ridicule and derision from society at large so that was that period and the 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 place where i turned toward finding some kind of spiritual understanding of what was happening. Wow. Fifth grade drinking. Yeah. I was difficult to manage, and so my dad medicated me with pharmaceuticals, and they turned a blind eye to the drinking. And then there was a year and a half of homeless? Not quite, 15 months. And the picking up of the camera along the way, getting into photography, getting into art, and then moving to New York, and then yeah, a funeral every three months is devastating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, there's an equivalency now, which is really the opioid e epidemic, um, um, particularly in the addiction community, where um, because um, you know the politics of addiction in this country are, are um, difficult. But um, what what happened was that because uh, the pharmaceutical companies managed to get the government to pay retail prices for painkillers for chronic pain, they became uh, available everywhere at, at reasonable prices. Um, but 
when you were buying them on the street, you were actually buying manufactured uh, pharmaceutical company manufactured products. So you could rely on what the packaging was. When the when the epidemic exploded and uh, uh, people began to respond to it by demanding that the drug companies stop selling so much of this stuff, uh, they began to tighten the screws on it. You you may remember a few years ago the government stopped paying for the pharmaceuticals, which was the driver of the pharmaceutical side of the uh, epidemic. Then the bootlegs came in, and the bootlegs were made with fentanyl, which is really unpredictable, and you need small quantities of it uh, to overdose from it. And so there's uh, a surge of overdoses that have come from the uh, closing off of the easy access to genuine pharmaceuticals into bootleg pharmaceuticals. Um, and so in that community, the, the deaths are equivalent in a way to what the AIDS deaths were. And they have the same uh, difficulty integrating that constant loss. And they are also in the position of being derided by society as a whole as, as drug addicts, right? And so they don't really get um, much support in that way. Yeah, there's a lot of perverse incentives that are being healed right now with better goal congruence around inclusive stakeholding and maximizing our potential rather than being extractive. And this has a lot to do with spiritual awakening, which we'll talk about. You had a lot of suffering that created the shift, which is a very common archetype, is the roots reaching down to hell so that the branches can blossom towards the heavens. But yeah, this started in fifth grade, really, and then it liver cirrhosis, 23, all these deaths, and just having that pivotal shift. So where did you go? Was that when you went to LA? You stayed, did you stay longer? In New no, York? I was still in New York. Um, I actually uh, discovered uh, uh, Trungpa Rinpoche. Um, so Naropa. I'd already known about Naropa because Naropa was one of the choices that sort of the, the deep hippie divers uh, went to for school. Um, I had some problems with um, uh, my capacity to, to trust anyone, let's put it that way. Um, I found him untrustworthy as a person to, to, to make a teacher, but I enjoyed the writings and I, I practiced on my own. So I would call it a period of being a Dharma orphan um, I was very interested in the teachings, very interested in the reading, but I was very uncomfortable becoming intimate with anybody or trusting anybody or believing that they wouldn't in some way turn around and exploit me. So I always stayed at a distance. Um, but I had friends. Uh, we also did some journeying into the Red Road. I don't know if you've uh, done any of the 
um, uh, spiritual practices of uh, uh, native people, but um, so we did a lot of sweat lodges and uh, those kinds of ceremonies. Uh, that was quite interesting in terms of the the, the willingness to become open and also <clears throat> in the beginning, um, of course, the extreme uh, experience shatters the 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 ego shatters the self and it just disappears and then you're in this place of freedom from the experience of self and if you've always been confined by the experience of self it's an amazing freedom of course the self comes back as soon as the uh, difficult circumstances are abated but you do have that breath there that moment of freedom uh, and it's in the dark uh, and uh, if you're sitting, say, we, we sat with uh, for uh, some ceremonies with a medicine man from North Dakota, and he was just incredibly magical in terms of the experience that we had. Of course, as my meditation practice deepened my capacity for equanimity and severe uh, physical trials, got so great that the self was very happily bobbing along the whole time. <laughs> That was uh, <coughs> less magical. Um, and then there's this, a kind of bonding that comes when when you're sitting with people and they're dying and they know they're dying and uh, and uh, they're in pain and and uh, you you can open to that if you want to. And so there was a lot of that kind of caring. I didn't get infected, but I don't know why, because I certainly behaved in the same way that everyone else did. Um, and there was that sort of puzzling piece. Uh, you weren't here for that lesson. You were here to <coughs> continue onward and share what you're sharing now with people around the world. So what happened is New York became a haunted place for me. Everywhere I went, it would activated the grieving uh, and there was really no place to go um, I had started an internet uh, business uh, in the late late 80s and when the 1989 recession hit uh, the company went under and so I, I had my last 10 grand and New York was haunted and I decided that I'll I know I'll come to Los Angeles and write screenplays that seems like a good idea. <laughs> so that's what I did. I was a filmmaker, you know, in, in New York. Uh, and um, we made these underground movies and we showed them in different places, uh, different clubs. And I quite enjoyed that, uh, that process. Uh, Non-narrative filmmaking, which was sort of the early Chicago's uh, instructions I had. And then <coughs> my reflux, which is what the cough is. And then I decided to go into narrative uh, stuff. Um, anyway, I came to Los Angeles and um, decided to write screenplays in 1992. And um, <clears throat> mm -hmm. yes, we have we have some uh, of this is um, George's 
the lower Manhattan dormitory effect. And this is some of his, a memoir of 1979 New York in photographs and lyric prose poetry. And there's other essayists that are in this as well, but it's very beautiful. He gifted this to me when he came and there's a lot of the what he's referencing right now so it is so the the book is divided into three sections the first section is called the lower manhattan dormitory effect and my first reputation in new york was as a poet and so uh and i wrote lyric pro, prose poetry and so the first section of the book is this long poem that I wrote in New York uh, that I finished in 1983, which describes that period of New York from the late 70s to the mid 80s. And then the middle part of the book are <coughs> a series of portraits that I made of the social group that I was in. Most of the people uh, in the photographs died at that time from AIDS. So you'll see at the, the front of the book, there's a dedication to the, the circle of friends that I lost. And then the third part of the book is called uh, Chicago is not New York, Los Angeles is neither one, which is the, the answer to the question you've really just asked me. Say the last, <laughs> say the last line again. Uh, Chicago is not New York, Los Angeles is neither one. <laughs> so it's a description of uh, moving from Chicago to New York and then moving from New York to Los Angeles and uh, the spiritual yeah. uh, journey that happened that was John John Kemp who died in 1981 he was the first one so if you remember your AIDS history, AIDS wasn't actually identified until 1984, but people started dying the summer of 79, which is why I chose 79 to be the subject of the book. And at that time, it was just an unexplained cancer that was uh, uh, killing people. And then it was uh, gay-related immune deficiency syndrome. Mm. And then they discovered HIV. So... And for those that are also interested in this, this is on, is this available on metagroup.org as well? It is, and you can also get it on Amazon. Cool. And there's also an ebook version of it if, if you don't want the paper. Although it is a beautiful book, uh, so you might consider it. Those are before and after pictures in <laughs> case. Uh, one of the great amusements of, of, the, of the book cover is that uh, there's a picture of me now, and then there's a picture of me when I was 25, let's say, and everyone says, I recognize you, who's that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> At first, <coughs> the joy of aging, I like to call that. Yeah, he told me when he walked in, he was like, you're going to age like this, too, if you're lucky. Right. Yeah. You don't today. So 
So there was a period of documenting and doing film in this late 70s, early 80s, while the craziness was happening in New York of identifying what even was happening with HIV and AIDS. And then there was a entering into this internet era and when you hit the recession packing up and you had been exploring spirituality you had turned towards spirituality and had been exploring that and then there was this I'm going to go and continue doing film in LA and then getting here then there was a process of also sort of recalibrating when you came here because that was was that like 15 years in new york 16 okay and then here i've lived here longer than anywhere else uh in fact i've lived in my current apartment longer than i've lived anywhere else um, and i came out here to write screenplays and i went at it pretty hard and uh, uh i had uh um, I guess two or three years where I was supporting myself doing that. And then I got a feature film, uh, uh, which uh, uh, is called Friends and Lovers, is starring Robert Downey Jr., Steve Baldwin, and Claudia Schiffer. Suzanne Cryer's in it. Um, Danny Nucci's in it. Anyway, we made the movie. It was released, and it didn't do well uh, critically or financially, and I got thrown into uh, director's jail, which I never... I was able to figure out a way out of. And so uh, that also uh, put an end to my screenwriting uh, efforts. But um, I also at that time wanted to begin to address the difficulties uh, that were dogging me from my childhood. So uh, I don't know uh, what uh, stock you put in Western uh, psychological definitions of uh, mental health issues, but uh, I was diagnosed with dissociative identity disorder in the early 90s. Um, and it was a good explanation for me because it made sense why everything was so difficult. And so then I went into this process of trying to work through that. And at the time, it was really a uh, mostly direct trauma reprocessing, of really no understanding at all of attachment or attachment theory. And so it was a very difficult period of uh, four or five years of working through that when I really didn't uh, have a bandwidth to do much else. <clears throat> so coming through that process and uh, so um, out of that process, uh, the, the main advantage of that was that I couldn't really get anything to happen in my film life uh, while I was so uh, dissociative and working through the dissociation then allowed me to get my first feature to be made and then uh, the feature didn't do well and so I didn't get to work beyond that. You know, the as we like to say, the film business is one strike baseball and so you either hit or you don't. So I needed to then uh, imagine a different uh, life, I think that what we really want to pursue in our lives is finding a sense of meaning or finding a sense of value in it. And most of the, uh, the typical rewards of our society 
which I experienced in my childhood, you know, an upper class, uh, upper middle class upbringing is, is very materially rich. It was also, uh, uh, as I like to say, a well-appointed torture chamber half the time. And so that wasn't appealing to me. I never was interested in, in pursuing any of that. And I had uh, suffered so greatly. I was really focused on trying to uh, find a way of being alive that actually had some sense of value to me, some sense of uh, peacefulness. And so um, I uh, had started meditating when I came to L.A. and uh, down in Venice at a place called Ordinary Dharma with Katriana Reed. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, I was, you know, my typical untrusting self, and they weren't kind enough for me. And so I, I moved back into a period of uh, Dharma orphanhood. And uh, uh, then the next teacher I tried was Shinzen, and he actually uh, miraculously was kind enough uh, for me to be willing to uh, sit with him as a teacher. Um, what does that mean, kind enough, during that time? Um, I wanted somebody who would just allow me to be the way that I was without demanding that I be different than I was. Mm, that, the radical acceptance of exactly where you were at. Right. Mm -hmm. That's what I wanted. And I didn't want to have to believe anything. And I didn't want... Uh, um, to have to reveal more than I wanted or was comfortable revealing. And uh, mm. and he was okay with that, mm. all of that. You know, I, I w I'm, um, think of myself as a clever person and I would set up these elaborate uh, obstacle courses for teachers to get through. That may be a better way of putting it. <laughs> Where you could fail at any moment and be slaughtered and... Uh, and he was the only one who up to that time had managed to get through that. I think also it co coincided with a, a lot of the the work on the dissociation that I was doing. Um, he also is, uh, I like to say, um, an over-explainer. Um, and we had some of this in our conversation earlier. I'm much more interested in the how to do it than what you're supposed to do. I want to know how you do it exactly, step by step, tiny little steps to mm. describe the process. And he does that, which is really useful. It's another reason why I study with Dan Brown. He, he's in the pointing out the great way tradition, which is uh, just really um, descriptive of exactly how to do it, not what you're supposed to do, which I find too general and and not helpful most of the time. Mm -hmm. And then that's also how I teach. It's not uncommon for uh, uh, somebody to say, uh, stop over explaining. <laughs> mm -hmm. But for somebody like me, um, I'm dyslexic, I'm dyspraxic, I'm dysgraphic, I'm dyscalculic. Uh, learning is an arduous, slow uh, process for me, and I need all of that support in order to understand, I do uh, get to go deep because of that, but uh, the uh, things that aren't descriptive enough aren't helpful. I love this. <laughs> I love this focus right now. So okay, so since Oops. no worries, 
<coughs> awesome. Just move it a little bit closer again, like that. Excellent. I love this focus on the difference between what you're supposed to do versus how you're supposed to do it. <laughs> I love this. Yeah, Shenzhen does have a heavy focus on how, and so does Dan Brown. And that makes sense that then you ended up picking up that as well and that it worked for you given where you had come from in your life. Let's have a little bit of a breakdown. Let's use the example of quieting the noisy mind, which is a very common example. So the what pointing is to say, quiet the mind. And then the how pointing is to say, use your breath and become aware of the space in which the clouds of thoughts arise and disappear. Is that about a good example? I would say you don't have to quiet your mind. Mm. Okay. <laughs> All right. I don't like that. That. Uh, oh. What do you have to do? Right. Oh, okay. So you just go straight to the how. Yeah. And so I, there's no what of quiet the mind or still the mind or become aware of space or emptiness. It's just the how. Particularly in the beginning when you can't do it anyway. Okay. So then even that whole. So, but isn't the utility of putting the star into place of where we're heading with the how? So what I would say is you don't have to still the mind. You just have to be able to maintain concentration. So what we're going to work on is you letting the whole mind be as busy as it's ever been and just being able to pinpoint your concentration and hold awareness of that. And we'll use the breath. So pick a place on the breath where you want to watch it. Tip of the nose, opening of the mouth, back of the throat, rising of the chest, rising of the belly. Take a look now. See where you can really detect that sensation easily and then we'll put your attention there. And may I ask for our audience and for just the cadence of taking this a little bit slower because you're going through it like you've been teaching <laughs> for 18 years. Yes. And so... Um, yeah, let's take it with the I would go case. that fast actually with a new student. <laughs> <laughs> okay, give us all of they the They don't different have time to, to locations. <laughs> Where in the how are all of the different locations? Because there's a very common recognizing in the traditions of example in Vipassana where you can become aware on the very nostril itself and on the very top of the mouth itself and become aware of which nostril the inhalation is coming into. So let's go through that those examples one more time. Well, I just, okay, then bring your attention to the tip of your nose. I don't know what they, they think the tip of the nose is. So I'm going to let them tell me what the tip of the nose is for them. So then I can agree or disagree with their description of the tip of the nose after I know what their description is. Uh, oftentimes, if you are too uh, directive, they shut down their own exploration and attempt to discover what you're directing them to discover. And what I want them to do is discover what their experience is, not what I think they should be having. <laughs> so, tip of the nose, opening of the mouth. What's the opening of the mouth like? 
Can you, what do you feel? What's the experience of that? And then they'll tell me and then I can direct them to a, a better uh, choice or just accept the choice that they have if it's good enough. What is it like to feel the breath in the back of the throat? And then they'll tell me. <clears throat> what is it like to feel the rising of the chest? And then they'll tell me. And then what is the... Uh, and so you give them the time here where you say, what does it feel like as the chest rises? And then they respond. Right. Okay, so you ask the question that's basically guiding their attention into a more relaxed state. And they're responding to every single one of your guidances with how they feel about the experience. Right. Describing their experience, which is a meditative experience, right? What you're trying to get them to have right off the bat is a meditation experience, not an idea of what a meditation experience should be. And then I say, which of those is the easiest for you to track? And then they tell me. So I don't have to assign anything. They're, they're doing the exploration they're assigning their attention and then i say just watch that and um if you get caught up in thinking as soon as you recognize it don't beat yourself up just come immediately back as many times as you need to there's no limit and in fact i would bet as a new meditator 90 plus percent of the time you're going to be caught up. <clears throat> but the coming back is actually the practice of meditation. So you're doing yes. it right. Yes, yes. I'm big on you're doing it right. <clears throat> and then what you notice is once you begin to develop concentration that the mind quiets. So I don't even need to tell them about that. They discover it on their own. Mm. And then uh, this is something that's very human. It's more valuable because they've discovered it than because I told them that that's what they should be looking for. Okay, interesting. So, so we have a We'll go ahead and see if this shot gives you guys a, yeah, an okay visualization of it. So what we do is we start off with directly into meditative experience being guided with the how. And so then there are these, the, the pointing is done experientially with each sentence having a response from the student that is being guided about how it feels. So there is a deep level of engagement and presence right. with the experience. So there's no blah, 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 and the student's mind is wandering and not paying any attention. But also, how do you know whether the student has understood your instructions? Yes. If you don't ask them That's and they right. don't tell you how they've understood Immediately them. afterward, every sentence is being confirmed that the student is understanding or not right every sentence that's really that's really great okay so now we're getting really we're getting taken through the core part of the how and then sentence by sentence confirming around our feeling of the experience 
And then we're bringing that attention, that very focused, as the mind wanders, we bring it back and naturally the mind quiets in that process. So interesting. So rather than, in a sense, being told the what of mind quiet and putting that in the North Star position and then undergoing the process of here's the experience of, all right, so let's use the breath as our tool to get to this place of stillness that we've put into the position. And there's a really kind of nice little hand guiding step by sentence by sentence, step by step around the direct experience of what is being felt with the breath as the tool that creates the quieting of the mind in a very guided way. Right. Cool. Hmm. Which is basically what is, you know, what is taught in the mystic traditions, but there is a lot of, there's a lot of noise in terms of when a, not direct one-on-one personalized guided Jedi-like guidance is happening because if it's not that what it is is it's very general is what happens it's really general and I've noticed that through some of the times that I've went through like a netty netty, not this, not that meditation guiding it for our audience that it's resonant and helps people, but it's very general because it's not being personalized. Hey, how you doing on this step? Okay. So you're here on this step. How about you? Okay. You're here on that step now confirm. Okay. So you have You're not your mind, you're not your body, you're not your name. And so that is not available because it's just a direct one hour to generally to the So I see there's a big difference. So then when you take like 10 or 20 people, you do you go one on one? How do you do that? Well, one of the things that I notice in the West is that most of the meditation instruction is coming from authors and really they're going around on book tours selling their books and doing sort of helicopter teachings is what I think of it as. Mm. Um, which is lovely and it, it creates this this uh, discussion about it. But if you want to engage beyond the very beginning of practice, you need to be in a relationship with a teacher who can give you the level of guidance that you need and really understand what your experience is. And so uh, at Metagroup, uh, one of the things we offer is this one-on-one meditation mentoring. And so people check in twice a month um, with me and I remember what they're doing and I remember the instructions that they've been given and they report on me in a very Burmese style, you know, this happened, then that 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 happened. What do you think? Uh, and so then we get into a dialogue and then we adjust the practice and then people have a period of time to practice and then they come back and uh, people do tend to make 
uh, uh, faster progress, uh, if that's something that they want. And also, they feel more supported. Sometimes when you come out of the belief if, in conceptual reality and you begin to see things the way that they really are, it's very disorienting. Um, one of the things that I um, suggest to people is that the more inauthentic you are in the way that you operate your life, the harder all of this is going to be for you. Because not only will you get to a place where you won't be able to do the inauthenticity anymore, but the people that you've been inauthentic with will be furious at you for being inauthentic with them. And so you have to be able to moderate that in a way that uh, people can adapt as you become more capable of uh, coming into an authentic expression. So there's often in the Theravada world this conversation around dark night, but I've, uh, or dark night is a Christian term, knowledge of the miseries is the Buddhist term. That you see that there is no self, and if you've hung your sense of security on there being one, it's frightening. There, nothing lasts. You can't count on anything. And if you can't adapt to that being the way that it is, um, then uh, it's miserable. You're sad. Uh, the things that you cling to, the goals that you thought would make you happy don't work. Uh, and you can see that. Um, it isn't that it hasn't always been like that and that you haven't been in this confusion about what is actually happening. Um, but that part still takes a sort of an, an integration. And then, you know, you live in a human body that's going to grow old, get sick and die, and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, except uh, find humor. <laughs> in the aging process, because it's yeah. a camp. <laughs> um, so then you come out to the other side of that, of course, and you see clearly how it is, and that puts you at this crossroads. In one direction is nihilism, right? Nothing matters. It's not going to last. I can't really have anything. It's not worth doing anything. And the other direction, which is actually the one I'm recommending, I do sometimes recommend things, that you go for full engagement, all in, in every moment, as much as you can. Because if you withhold yourself to avoid the disappointment of losing it, which you're going to do anyway, you don't have the engagement. You just have the losing it, which you're, you're pretty much guaranteed to have. So that's this this open eyes open, fully engaging each moment in this authentic expression. And what comes from that is this meaningfulness, this richness at being alive. It's amazing yes. to live that way. Uh, and uh, when you contrast it to the self-limiting uh, approach that is very common, the protective approach, the need for a sense of artificial safety, uh, what you get out of that, of course, is despair. And when you when you can see them side by side, why would you ever pick despair over this vibrant aliveness? Francis Lucille calls it the eternal fireworks. So are you going to enjoy the eternal fireworks? <laughs> May as well. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. <coughs> Sorry, the coughing is... Just in the spring. So. 
I have a couple questions. One of them is, what about self-inquiry or the direct path, becoming aware of awareness, getting, investigating what is I or who is me? What about the questioning the self, questioning the I or the me itself? I think it's a useful practice. Um, there's a few ways to talk about it. Um, when I was first sitting with Shinzen, he said the, the self-no-self experience is like a walled garden. On in the inside of the wall, it's an immaculate, completely trimmed, super maintained, a beautiful garden. And on the outside of the wall, it's just a complete jungle. And there's a gate that goes through the wall. And you can move from the manicured garden to the jungle. And that liberation would actually be able to come and go between the two whenever you wanted. So that if you needed to manifest a, a brilliant sense of self, you could do it like that. And then if you didn't need it anymore, you could just let it go. And what ends up happening, of course, is in the beginning, you're trapped on one side of the gate or the other and you can't operate the lock. And then you get better at operating the lock and you can come and go, but sometimes it gets stuck. Sometimes you get stuck in self and you immediately see how the suffering is so intense, mind-blowingly intense. And then you go into the, the no-self side and you see that you, you have no motivation to do anything that you could sit on a bench for a week and not move and it would be fine. Uh, as householders, which we are, neither one of those approaches is going to be very good. And so you want to really get good at moving between the two. Sasaki Roshi used to say, my job as a meditation teacher is a travel agent taking you effortlessly from heaven to hell. Mm -hmm. So that back and forth. If you looked at it from a more Tibetan uh, perspective it would be the an emptiness frame where each time you get caught up in a sense of self and you notice the suffering that arises there uh, find the sense of self that is suffering <clears throat> and what you discover of course is you can't locate it and then what you see is this uh, awareness knows a pattern of sensory experience which is uh, identifiable as self much in the way that anger or happiness would be identified as a pattern of sensing experience and it it takes on no more importance than that sense of uh, any uh, conceptual version of sensing experience and then the, then you're in freedom uh, one of the things that's interesting in, in contrasting that is in holding that open awareness Open awareness is a tricky term because in the Theravada world it means something different uh, than in the Tibetan world. But um, <clears throat> if you come into a profound uh, no-self state using the Theravada path, then you don't fix any fixate anything. So if you were talking to me and I was in a profound no-self state, I wouldn't fixate the sound of your voice and it would just be vibration. And I wouldn't understand what you were saying to me. And I would be able to respond to you from wisdom mind, from that, that uh, everything, 
but I wouldn't be able to understand what I was saying. And I wouldn't be able to make a memory of our experience together. And it, neuro, from a neuroscience perspective, d depending on the technique you do, it has a different effect on the brain. And so if you shut down the capacity to form autobiographical memory, then you don't remember anything. Um, this is not that practical uh, in uh, householder life. If you go from the Tibetan view, where you just hold this huge, expansive consciousness, this conscious awareness, then you see all of these activities rising in this uh, uh, giant experience. And then you do uh, remember what happens, which I actually have a preference for because it's easier to manage. It's, for instance, uh, um, years of being interviewed by Shinzen when he's in this no-self no state. He doesn't remember anything about the interview. And so it's always a one-off experience which I've, I've never found helpful, uh, really, whereas with... Uh, you can be in a state of both no self and having memory to be a good travel agent. Right, exactly. Yeah. So that's the, that's the difference. So then when you, when you work with somebody who uh, is uh, in, you know, uh, wisdom mind, um, not identified at all with a sense of self, uh, but at the same time able to to uh, um, allow the formation of conceptual reality to the point that you can understand the language that you're using and how people are responding. Um, I find it, it has a greater utility, let's put it that way. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I call these crevices. It's almost as though the... All of these different faces to the one end, all these many paths to this one end and truth being this pathless land and the always already free perfection that we are, just this already is awakening. The very nature of having this as you go up in this awakening process to have these crevices that are like big amounts of snow that you don't actually know fall into this 50 foot crevice that nobody's going to find you and you'll die. In a sense, the crevices are like this. You get to be whatever expression of infinity you want to be and that is coming through to be but that if you fall into this crevice where you abide in this perpetual no self no symbolism no memory have whatever understanding of the unique expression that you are, but remember that your bodhisattva is not going to be as potent. So your travel agent ability is not going to be as potent. And t 
to be a travel agent or to be a bodhisattva, to be this sort of Jedi that's able to navigate across all these different lenses of non-duality, duality, individuation, awakening, popping into awareness, popping into source, void, emptiness, being infinity. Do you know how to navigate all of that? Or are you stuck parroting a specific... So I found that the more of a travel agent you are, the more you're actually able to be a shepherd or a steward of the creation's awakening. Yep. One of the things that I notice is that in the beginning, practice is very oriented around personal suffering and the pursuit of the relief of personal suffering, but that that isn't uh, that hard. Uh, then you see in the distance happiness jumping on the horizon and you think, oh, I'll go for happiness. And then you go after happiness. And then that's not that hard. And then you see freedom. And you go for that. That's a little harder. But it's, it is actually totally worth doing. <clears throat> And then it was hilarious because it was here the whole time. <laughs> well, that's a bummer. <laughs> you know, as Dad says, uh, I, this is the metaphor I quite like. It's cloudy. Does that mean the sun isn't shining? So, Very simple. Sweeping away the obscurations that prevent you from seeing. Um. So then it also depends a lot on what the conditioning is. Did you ever play a game called Minesweeper? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I liken it to that. <laughs> you Sometimes you click on a square and half the board opens up and it's totally effortless. And sometimes you click on a square and every single square around you has a high number. And you click on it and the game blows up. So the conditioning for everybody is different and it really is dependent on what happened. <coughs> and so the one size fits all doesn't really help because everybody's conditioning is different. And so then you need to be able to meet the person and their conditioning and then uh, find patience. I'm not a particularly yes. patient person, but um, <laughs> I, I do find that I can find compassion for people if they're actually ardent in their effort. Yeah. There's a lot of value in the very meticulous howness of training attention and using the breath as the tool. Huge benefit. Insane utility and we'll talk about this like we did in the first hour before we started the podcast where there's a tremendous utility in it in entrepreneurship and in science and engineering and creativity and even your relationship with your spouse or your kids your friends just the pause in itself and training the non 
reactivity, but the observer or the witnessing creates this joy and peace rather than the needing to force the perspective into everything. So that in itself has extreme utility, even in the practical matrixy infrastructures. Yet, that is sometimes overly done in the sense of nobody ever sometimes tells meditators to get off of the cushion and not only to investigate the nature of who is it that is even meditating, first of all, right? So you're a person that's meditating and then you never question what it means to be a person. You never question life itself. You never question what your source is. And if your identity is actually the very source and force of creation, and that can propel this no self. So there's that. And then there's also the component of get off of the cushion and weave your realizations into society. Can meditation be when you're at a grocery store and you're checking out and you're smiling and you're holding the space of emptiness and joy and peace while you're in your engagement with the person that's checking you out the checker i think one of the reasons that i gravitated to shinzen and also to dan is that the main practice is the practice in life the cushion is just training yourself to be able to do it well enough so that you can take it out but the emphasis was always on taking it out it was never in in withdrawing onto the cushion and so uh, all of the just instructions you'll get from me or from them would be that this is just the, the formal practice is just training you so that you can take it out in life. And the majority of the practice is as a practice in life. So that, that actually has never been um, much of a concern of mine because um, that's never the, the teachers that I would, was drawn to um, uh, never taught that. So, um, so to piggyback a little bit on the conversation about concentration, when I started teaching at a meditation center in Los Angeles, um, I was trying to teach basic Shinzen techniques. Um, one of the things about Western practice is that most of the instruction that you get in meditation in the early period, so this is for, say, the 70s on, was based on retreat practice. So you went to a retreat and you learned to practice. And so uh, we call it dry vipassana. I'm a meta vipassana teacher mainly, so that's what we talk about. You don't do any uh, preliminary concentration practice because you sit on these long retreats and in meditating for hours and hours every day, the concentration develops just as a de facto quality of that kind of practice, and then you can go into the insight practice. When I was teaching in the meditation center, you know, 90 plus percent of people never went on retreats. And so the basics, uh, the super basic Shinzen techniques were too difficult to do. And so what was really happening is that people were sitting on the cushion 
and having daydreaming experiences, not meditation experiences, because they didn't have the preliminary capacity to do the simplest meditation techniques. And so when I began to teach, I began to, to impose concentration practice uh, as a prerequisite for insight practice. And it was a simple fix. People sit um, and do preliminary concentration practices for a couple of months. Then they have access concentration and they can zoom along on their insight practices that if they don't do the preliminary practices, they never really get to see the potential of. Yes, agreed. And this is also where the scenarios have happened, where you'll take somebody that gains a little bit of insight into the the nature of everything already being free and perfect, and yet they'll still have ego flare-ups. Right. Yeah. So then the other thing that would happen is that people would get into areas of unresolved psychological difficulty from doing the insight techniques and they wouldn't know how to manage them and the intensity of the experiences would often be so negative that they would withdraw from meditation altogether for a period of time and then the suffering would grow. We talked about this earlier. And then when the suffering again propelled them to start practicing and they would practice again, but they would be in this cycle of uh, some practice, some intense practice, then no practice. So what I discovered was that what was most beneficial was to develop this capacity for, for, uh, of the heart so that you develop the capacity to be kind to yourself. You develop the capacity to be compassionate for the experiences you had. You develop your capacity for joyfulness and for balance so that if something happens in the insight side of practice, you can rush back into the heart practices and have this container to settle and come back into a place of kindness for yourself. It's very common, <laughs> excuse me, <coughs> in Western practitioners to have a very harsh uh, relationship to the self. And when you get into the Vipassana side, it can act, activate that. And then they're having this experience of, you know, severe self-criticism in the meditation and, uh, and completely derailing it. And so in this metta vipassana integrated practice, you come in and the first practices you do develop this capacity for kindness. So uh, the way that Dan Brown frames it is these are two separate systems. There is the system for, for negative experience and the system for positive experience. You can do all of this work to uh, limit the intensity of the negative experiences, but if you don't, uh, do work to intentionally improve the capacity for positive experience, that never develops. And so it is this balance between really pumping up the positive experiences and your capacity to tolerate very positive experiences and mitigating the negative experiences that actually make the more advanced practices easier to do because often uh, the, the intensity of the bliss experiences that come from more advanced practice are overwhelming for people and they don't experience overwhelming emotion as positive. They experience it as difficult or troublesome. And so you, these uh, early practices need to be there so that when you are hit with a bliss bomb, say you can just be delighted that you're in this bliss bomb and not completely derailed and suddenly spin into anxiety instead of just being able to 
bliss out for a while. Interesting, almost as though when the bliss bomb hits and you're rolling on the floor laughing and you're just collapsed on the sidewalk laughing at the ineffable perfection and freedom that are you anxious about how other people are looking at you? And that would be the <coughs> disaster rather than being able to see that that is the same one intelligence looking at the another component of the one intelligence. And that way then there's no anxiety. Right. And so then there's freedom. There's freedom. Even if that person is in the matrix and they're looking with why are you happy? They're the bliss police and they're <laughs> and they're angry that you see the entirety of the whole and rather than having that yeah, that's critical. We have emotions, we have emotional regulation systems. Most of the time we regulate our emotions through thinking, through repetitive thoughts. We have a negative experience and it exceeds the window of tolerance. That's a Dan Siegel frame. Um then the mind will use the regulation strategies it has to regulate that. If you have an intensely negative experience and you use this harsh self-talk to regulate it, the mind will turn on the self-talk and it takes you out of the present moment into thinking. And that's the process of regulation. If you have a very intense positive emotion and it exceeds your window of tolerance, the mind is going to look to the database for how to regulate it. And if you use very harsh self-criticism to regulate positive experience that exceeds your capacity to hold it, you're going to go from very positive to very critical because the body mind will have to regulate. And so you really want to part of this investigation is to see what you're doing so that you can make the adjustments to the system so that will you'll get to a place where you can actually support the 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 uh, deep advanced practice because yes. if you don't do it yes, yes. the system that's in place is just not going to allow it <clears throat> so the vast majority of this can also be boiled down to patterns and becoming aware of the patterns and also becoming more sovereign in the scripts that are running taking a neurobiological angle on this and doing it from a a place of wanting to know one's true nature above all else and being so earnest in that process that you can get really good at the attention practices and get really good at understanding all of these components, but also recognize that you can sort of liberate yourself to this state of recognizing that I am the very empty source that has this very illusory sense of I that experiences infinite creation. And if you sort of see yourself as that very one intelligence that is eternal, that is infinite in its creativity, and that all of this is that one intelligence and there is no separation and there, and you, you're, you're perpetually come from a place of how do I serve my own creation? rather than how do I extract 
from it. Yeah. And so there's like, if you can pop to this quote, like last stage of awakening and just begin seeing it all as that one intelligence at play with itself and then come from a place of serving it in a sense and stay perpetually empty, repeatedly abide in the very emptiness, experiencing the infinite creation and also abide in the place of serving, coming from a place of serving the one intelligence, then a lot of the so-called all of these ways to talk about the mind can in a sense be you can transcend that and then as it comes up you'll be ready for it because you'll see it come up like you described where you see because you've trained this vigilance you see the more conditioned personhood habit arise and you you can tell in a sense when there is a a trajectory off of this very empty sourcefulness in service to its creation where the trajectory comes up and it's this old pattern this old script where it was trying to manipulate or extract some sort of validation and so that's this kind of coming from the place of wanting to radically accept no love and accept yourself and the creation exactly how it is and then pop to the very sourceful awakened state of this all being one intelligence at play with itself and then sort of dealing with the conditionings as they arise it's like a direct path popping bird's way rather than this very slow ants way but that has very important components to it like we've been talking about with training the attention in a sense we've also talked about this quite a bit but the idea of neo advaita or the so-called you know direct pointing to this very nature of no self all being a dream is very important and yet at the same time the mind being trained to sort of become quiet really enables this insight and in doing so it stabilizes the realization and that stability of awakening enables the travel agent the very stableness to it well that's the puzzle the the taste of awakening is ordinary everybody's probably had it they may not recognize that that's what it is but like you say, it's always here and it's very common. It's ordinary. What's not ordinary is to be able to stabilize the view of it. <clears throat> and so that's where everything gets in the way. And then how do you tackle that process? Um, and as a practice in life, for instance, Dan tells a story that uh, uh, he was um, had the taste of awakening and his teacher uh, said that he needed to 
stabilize it. And so what he was going to do was have him sit in the doorway of the office and control the flow of people who went in and out while he was attempting to <laughs> stabilize his awakening <laughs> and that he would have to stay there until it was stable. <laughs> Which is why in, in so many of the Enlightenment jokes, it's, okay, now go back home. Right. And sit with your family for a week. I also recommend that even if it's not enlightenment, because if you can't recognize your own conditioning, you, you'll see it in them. Yes. And they have the same conditioning you do. If you want to know how you regulate your emotions, go home and look at how everybody else is doing it because you're doing it the same way. And then evaluate whether you think it's a good way or a bad way. And if it's a bad way, stop doing it. And if it's a good way, reinforce it. What, of course, happens then is that you have deficits of uh, capacity to regulate and then you have to train yourself to regulate in a different way. So you want to train yourself out of afflictive emotional regulation strategies into beneficial strategies, but you have to see them in order to know what to do. And so that's that piece. How do you how uh, do you see it? And then uh, from the point of view of a teacher, it isn't useful to somebody for you to describe to them how you see it and tell them to look for that. What might be useful is describing the process of how you saw it and then suggesting that they investigate how to see it, which they will know because their conditioning is different than yours and your conditioned responses are different than theirs. And you can't point that out for them. They have to discover it themselves. So in teaching somebody this stuff, you have to again and again push them to examine what their experience is, uh, oops, particularly, <coughs> not generally and not yours. One of the things I notice a lot in, in uh, teachers is that they're very good at uh, describing their experience, but they haven't figured out that it isn't universal. The very nature of the travel agent is what's most exciting or the bodhisattva, that which is really able to take whatever confused seeking impulse that is approached to the entity and be able to provide a really strong reflection that creates a self-inquiry on the entity's end. So that very ability to learn how to reflect and how to stay quiet and still and empty until the spontaneous, best, effortless words come is something that I found to be important to train to abide in I'd be curious do you feel 
emptiness witnessing infinite creation? I would need to know what you mean. Well, how does that resonate with you? Well, um, the main practice I'm doing now is called self-arising, self-liberating. And it's holding that expansive uh, experience uh, not so tightly that it just becomes uh, wordless, soundless, and not so loosely that you get caught up in things. So that this process of being, uh, uh, Dan describes it as, it's as if you're writing the message on water. Mm, you're yeah. able to detect the message but it, you don't cling to it at all, so it disappears immediately. So that's that place of balance. Self-arising and self-liberating. Liberating. So in essence, that the very infinite creation is having a self-appearance and a self-liberation and a self-appearance and a self-liberation without any clinging at all to any, quote, past or any, quote, right. future. And just enjoy the very freedom and perfection. Yes. Stabilize that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um. I say things like uh, to Dan, you know, you have these elaborate explanations of all of these things and this elaborate languaging of all of these things. They don't really resonate with me. And he says, they don't need to. Yeah. Um, he also says that in the West, science is what's miraculous. And the miraculous is no longer miraculous in that sense. So uh, one of the things I like to do when I go uh, sit with the Sadao in Myanmar is listen to his his tales of people flying and all sorts of That's funny that people think that the analysis of form is, is miraculous. <laughs> it's kind of limiting. <laughs> so when did we come to that understanding? <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's a miracle the the very fundamental unit of biology of the cell is in fact a beautiful miracle, but at the same time, realizing emptiness is a miracle. Well, but, yeah, the faith in all of those constructs, which are really temporary, uh, is what's hilarious. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the Sado was describing this, this story of some students of his, um, and the mother was old and moving too slowly, and they were impatient to go to the festival, and so they informed her that she would have to stay at home because she wasn't ready. And then they took a cab to the festival. And she um, went into a moment of compassion and practiced her metta. Uh, and then the, uh, the bliss that arose transported her and she flew across the city and she arrived at the festival before they did. <laughs> Uh, and immediately, one of the German kids in the front row said, could you demonstrate that for us now? Yeah. 
pitched right over the Seydor's head. And then uh, I, I said uh, to the Seydor, um, quite a metaphor. And he said, you have that sharp Western mind, which means you can't see what's right in front of you. Yes, <laughs> that's such a good way to put it. Which I wow. had me laughing for days. <coughs> wow, what a good way to put it. Yeah. The sharp Western mind can't even see what's right in front of it, a.k.a. the very screen on which all the modulations happen. Right. So That's I, such a good way to put it. <laughs> such a good way to put it. That's why my nervous system went into shock and I just started crying in the fetal position for like 10 straight minutes when the first pop into awareness, aware of awareness happened because it was right there the whole fucking time. Mm. I call it bittersweet. Bittersweet. Bitter because that's how it is. Sweet because you can do it now. You can do it now. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, that's the... You really get the the greatest of all time, Rumi. You go from room to room looking for the diamond that's already around your neck. And then what is hilarious is that then you go and you try and like explain when people ask, you know, like heal this confused seeking impulse. What do I do? And then like you ask are you aware that you exist? It's like, yes. Are you aware that you're aware? Yes. But it's so funny how fast it just, it's like a, you, a confirming of it. Even for me, you know, five years ago, nobody asked me that exact question, but I just, that feeling of how quickly you just dismiss the fact of beingness or isness or awareness or I amness, how fast it's just dismissed, how fast the God is just dismissed for the modulations of the screen itself. I am this, I am that, I am career, I am identity, I am name, I am form. That's where it all, that's the whole argument. Right. And so the turn inward from all of that is the cessation of the argument with God and the abiding in God itself, which then enables the purification and it enables coming from a place of service rather than from a place of extraction. Yeah, and yeah, it's just, it's right here, you know, just the screen that you're watching this on before it's modulated. And it's the same thing with the very, you know, Just take the very nature of of the blank canvas and just how many different ways can you 
color this blank canvas with art? It's the same answer as how many different ways can you modulate the screen with images to make movies? It's just the level of subtlety with you becoming aware of that being the true nature is atrophied. It's atrophied. The, the nature of the energetic contraction is that it has atrophied its true nature as the very source of the infinite creation and it's in its contracted personhood and it's not focused on this, the very blank screen or blank canvas and rather it's focused on all of the identity. It's focused on the personhood. It's focused on trying to extract peace and happiness from the creation rather than recognize that it the nature of the awareness itself is peace and happiness i'd like to use a quantum metaphor for that please yes <laughs> so in quantum mechanics of course in the moment all of the possibilities are there all of them limitless possibilities as soon as you choose one the one that you pick becomes solid and all of the other choices are lost. And then in the next moment, everything that's possible from the place you've just chosen opens. And as soon as you pick one, every possibility except for the one you picked falls away. And then that leads you to the next moment where all of the moments that are connected to the moment you're in, that were connected to the preceding moment, open. <coughs> if you can see them, and if you can't see them, what you see is this very sort of puny array of choices that you keep picking. And samsara, this groove, this rut, where you don't allow yourself to see all of the possibilities that are there, just the ones that you're habitually used to choosing. And so it creates the perception that that's all that there is, even though all the time, all of the other choices were there. Um, which I think is is a useful me metaphor because in that moment where you're heading down a sort of vicious cycle, what's opening in the moment is all of the possibilities, including the virtuous cycle. And you could, without obligation to the direction you're going and choose something else if you can see it. <clears throat> yeah. So that's the training. The training is to exactly. open. And then a lot of those choices are going to have these conditioned reactions of fearfulness or disinterest. We're always choosing things that have high value to us as we select what we choose to make conceptual reality out of. Uh, and, uh, you know, your list of high value targets, if you don't evaluate it, might not have great things on it. It might be conditioned from your earliest earliest experiences, but they still might not be that useful to you. And yet they're still on your list of high value targets. And so it's seeing that and then training the mind out of it that often uh, creates the possibility of a view that can then see the other choices, but it, it's obscured from seeing because of that. <clears throat> yep. The infinite possibility is here and the contracted person identity sees one or two of the trajectories right and the liberated sees all of them 
and working your way with unfreezing the will, the choice, the sovereignty from the algorithms and scripts of those patterns towards the liberated free is just the relaxation of that contracted identity. Relax it, expand it, close the delta, the gap between the way that you see yourself as a person and the way that God sees you right now. Does God have acceptance for the creation exactly as it is? You were saying, yes. I was just going to say, exactly how? Oh, yeah. Yeah, how to close. Exactly. The what is closing the gap and then the how. Yeah. Is everything that we've talked about so far. Yeah. Exactly. How do I do that? Perfect. And that's what the simplified spirituality is, is the, is the how. How to close the gap from the person contracted energy to the way that God loves its creation and accepts its creation right now exactly as it is. And again, as we brought up earlier, the very activity of using the breath and becoming aware of the breath, the tool that's always with you and becoming aware of that repeatedly and becoming aware of the very sky itself that is where it all arises and passes and then just walking each person sort of through step by step sentence by sentence that process and checking how does it feel right now and that's the really tailored personalized approach and that's very important versus I like the word you used earlier helicopter teachings is sort of a good way to put it because I I really needed I would um, have an experience and I wouldn't be able to integrate it and then I would ask my teacher and they would tell me what to do and then I would do that and see how it went and then in this constant dialogue uh, move ahead and so that's really what I, I think the, the usefulness of, of having a regular dialogue with the teacher is. Um, and then <clears throat> you don't actually need a teacher who's a, a full master if you're not at the, in advanced practice. You just need somebody who's a little bit ahead of you <laughs> mm -hmm. so that we can use uh, people in our community that are also practitioners. So. Uh, it's also important to have um, a community of meditators that you're connected to and in dialogue with because I don't know about you, but have you ever tried to explain uh, esoteric meditation experience with somebody who uh, believes in the solid world? <laughs> Does it go that good? <coughs> question is why <laughs> did they ask to have it explained to them that's always the funny thing is ask yourself you know was i asked for this because if the answer is no then why are you sharing your gold with somebody that's going to slap it out of your hand 
Well, I'll give you an example. We were, I, I had a, a few people over, uh, three hardcore meditators, been practicing for a long time, and one person uh, who doesn't practice before. And she was kind of saucer-eyed <laughs> <laughs> the whole time. Went well, but, you know, it was like, uh, whoa! <laughs> uh -huh. So, <coughs> if you <coughs> get into difficulty, you need support. Who's going to support you? If all of the people around you don't know anything about meditation and don't have any experience of working through meditation experiences, uh, how are they going to support you? So then you're unsupported, and that tends to slow practice down. So you need to have this community around you that will support you, the Sangha, they call it, uh, that supports you, but also <clears throat> you need somebody who uh, is ahead of you enough to be able to understand what's happening. A lot of times, particularly with the dissolution experiences, people get really frightened by them and they, they have a you know, you hit a tipping point, you're not actually able to go back to where the way it was before. Uh, and, uh, you know, with prop with support, it's kind of a bump in the road without support, it can be catastrophic. So <clears throat> I really think that that's a, an important piece of this. If you want to go deep, yes, you need to put this support group around you. Absolutely. First. <laughs> because otherwise you'll just have to keep slowing down. Yeah. I did, did mention I'm not that patient. <laughs> yeah. This is a critical part of the awakening architecture is having this both one-on-one -on -one where there's a personalized distillation for exactly where the person's at as well as the integrative post trampolining you get these landing zones that sort of help i would be curious to wrap with you on one last subject which is yikes yeah we've been already I need cruising to make a text because i'm late for my next appointment okay excellent uh yeah, they're already texting me Yeah, we did cruise through our, our time slot. Oh, I see. Also, I was in a session before this and Tyson had messaged me. I pass you along my love, Tyson. Uh. <laughs> Super grateful for all of your love and Epic coordination. Thank you. Thank you. The admin of the <laughs> meta group. Yeah. <coughs> okay. So the question would be when you experience no self, are you experiencing everything as one it all as life depends on what practice you're doing if you're doing a Theravada oriented practice you would uh, you could call it a profound flow state where nothing's fixated so there's no boundaries in any way 
it's just vibratory energy. Any of the sense gates that you turn to, it's just unfixed, unfixated vibratory energy. So you don't you don't make sound in anything. You don't make visual experience in anything. You can't detect the inside or the outside of the body. You can't detect one sense gate's edge and another sense gate's. It's all just that one uh, flowing vibratory energy space. Mm -hmm. And there are other sort of no self. Well, I would say descriptions. Uh, in the if you're holding a big space, and everything is just an arising and a passing of uh, uh, energy events, and the self arises and passes, there's no identification at all with the experience of self. So you could describe that as a no self experience. I tend to think of the no self discussions though more toward the Theravada. Uh, place and the that's described more in Tibetan practices as emptiness practice. Yeah, that's approximately what is resonating for me right now and is I would say the fundamental last step of the awakening is to abide as the very inexhaustible source of infinite creation and just going beyond coming and going. Shinzen used to say he wanted to know what enlightened people did when they weren't doing anything. And so he would sneak up on Sasaki Roshi's house and peep in the window and he would just be sitting there. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yep. So. And that's what you could also call holding space. Just abiding in space. Mm -hmm. And the 2020s will become even noisier and there will become even more demand for silence, for awakening, for people that know how to just hold space. Well, yeah, what's coming is going to be intense and we're going to have to respond in a way that's inclusive or we're going to be at war. <clears throat> that's how I sort of see it. Um, because it's one intelligence. There's, as you mentioned earlier, where do you draw an edge? You can't even draw an edge with your own inhalation of oxygen right now, let alone between you and the very planet that secretes you and keeps you alive. Just become more and more relaxed into the fact that it's one intelligence at play with itself and then create from that place. And as you do that, then the architectures will be pro-life and anti-war. Good. Yeah. Great. Okay, let's wrap. Thank All right. you. <clears throat> that was super. <laughs> Thank you, George. That was super. All right, good. Loved it. Thanks, Michael. We really appreciate you too. Thank you for making the introduction happen and for making the show happen. That was a blast. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Infinite adoration. We would love to hear your thoughts in the comments below on the episode. Let us know what you think. Like the video, 
If it brought you value, helps the algorithm. Subscribe if you haven't to the channel. Share the video with people that you feel like this would profoundly influence. Check out our good old friends at the Meta Group. The link is in the bio below, metagroup.org. Check it out. And a lot of great classes and retreats are available up there. So go ahead and give that a check out. Yeah. And that is all. Thank you much, love. Bye. Bye. <laughs>